Welcome to Conversations in Confidence, where you get a front row seat to learn the insider tips, tricks, and insights to help you win the mental game of music. So, without further ado, please take your seat and welcome your host, Paul Crick, the Performance Confidence Coach. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Conversations in Confidence. The guitar, particularly in the classical world, has had an interesting evolution as an instrument from its lute origins, regarded by many as an instrument of sentiment, not of serious music. Take Olin Downs' critical review of Segovia's 1928 debut performance in New York. He acknowledged Segovia's wizardry, but noted he didn't and cannot remove the limitations that will always surround this instrument. Hmm, music critics, eh? What do they know? My guest today is a fabulous musician who rubs shoulders easily with the originators such as Fernando Sor, Mauro Giuliani, and Andre Segovia. He's a contemporary of John Williams and Sharon Isbin at Juilliard, to name but a few. He's made great strides in bringing the guitar repertoire of Paraguayan composer and guitarist Agustin Barrios to the attention of music lovers and a wider public throughout his early recordings, and has branched out in many directions, including working on the concerto for ukulele, of which you'll hear more of as we chat. So please sit back and enjoy a great conversation in confidence with Richard Durrant, the barefoot, stand-up, unclassical guitarist. Well, welcome, Richard, to Conversations in Confidence. Thanks for making time to talk to me. It's an enormous pleasure. Lovely to talk to you again. Great stuff. So, uh, I think I'll start by saying, what was it that drew you to study music, and in particular, the guitar? Well, I was, I was always obsessed with music right from when I was a little kid. I'm one of six children. I come from a big family. We lived in a very small house. We had a record player, and my dad had a guitar. And I was fairly obsessed with that guitar. And I, I just loved anything that went on the record player, really. Um, I, I, was, I was into all sorts of different music right from a very early age. My earliest memories of Beatles tracks coming out, different people releasing, uh, you know, chart music was very important to me in the late 60s and early 70s. My earliest memories are all musical, really, so it was inevitable that I would... Uh, when I discovered there was such a thing as a musical profession, uh, that was for me, really, so it was a no-brainer. Marvellous. And um, what was it like for you at the Royal College of Music as you moved towards a professional career? Cool, there's a question. Well, like like most students, it was um, uh, chaotic, uh, inconsistent, haphazard, debauched, you know, all the usual student stuff. Um, mm. uh, I, I sometimes think that... that that when you're that age, you're you're very ill-equipped to do any serious study. Um, but alongside that, I was actually very serious about my music. I wanted to be a composer. I wanted to be a, a soloist. Um, and there was this amazing kind of concentration that went on around all the other craziness uh, when I was up in London. Um, and it was the, the most practice I'd ever done in my life. It completely dwarfed anything I'd done for my grade eight or all that stuff, it was a, a, a completely different pace. And um, it, it was a lovely thing to be able to bury yourself in, in, in your playing and in your writing. And, and uh, yeah, that was, that was the best aspect of it. So I guess, I guess one of the common questions we hear is, so how, how long should you practice? 
Um, what, what was your experience of that? Because you'll have tested different things out. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, when I was completely immersed in, in what I was doing, and, and um, like I say, I, I, I did have um, a fair amount of discipline, actually, in my playing, um, dis- despite being a student. Um, I... I, I, I'm still a great believer that you can practice too much. I, th- I, I remember some, uh, particularly pianists actually, used to used to go for five or six hours in those little practice rooms under the pavement in Prince Consort Road, which you had to book up at the Royal College. Um, I never did that much. I think if you do three or four hours, I think three hours is a magic number. Three or four hours, you're, you're going to start to have a special effect on your on your kind of physical presence on the instrument. So that's enough. Um, don't forget that when you're not actually playing the instrument, you're if you're thinking about it, you're still practicing as well. So there's sure. there's a time away from away from the instrument is just as valuable, and it gives you more time for it to sink in. You know, I think five or six hours too much. So what do you think the difference is between those musicians that graduate and are able to sustain a career in music, and those that for whatever reasons become indifferent and sadly give it up? Another good question. Uh, the the majority of people, I think, do give it up, uh, especially uh, musicians of my generation. We were at the kind of fag end of the music business, where where that glorious little period where it was possible to to be relatively well off and successful in a in a busy, thriving industry that was coming to an end. Um, so I think people were kind of people fell by the wayside as they saw how difficult music was becoming uh, as a profession. Um, but it's more than that. I, I think um, um, I thought about this a bit actually. I I I've recently become involved with my old youth orchestra again. I'm an ambassador for the Brighton Youth Orchestra, and I've kind of reacquainted myself with this wonderful bunch of people. It's almost like travelling back in time when I'm with them. And I'd forgotten what high achievers a lot of musicians are. These kids that I know from the youth orchestra, they're you know they're, whether they're fiddle players or bassoonists or whatever. Most of them aren't going to go on to study music or to have music as a profession. They're going to go, they're, they're Oxbridge candidates. They're going to study medicine, science, whatever it is. They've got their careers mapped out. Hardly any of them want to pursue music as a profession. Um, so those that do actually take the plunge and, and, and go into um, their full-time student career as a musician, they're also in a minority, Um so, so by the time they, you know, you've got your degree in music, you've done your whatever it is, your diploma, performance diploma, which is what I did, um, then you're in a very unusual situation. Um, my, I think what I'm trying to say is that, that, that people, people get involved in music because they love music and, they, and you can continue um, playing in orchestras and you can continue playing gigs um, even if that runs alongside um, a, a proper job, whatever that means. Um, you don't have to pursue, pursue it as a profession now. That kind of opens up a whole load of stuff as well because um, there are lots of musicians now that do have day jobs and and manage to um, still go out and give concerts and, and, and gig in their spare time. And, and a lot of that has actually pushed down the uh, the money that musicians are paid for their services. So... Yeah, it's a big subject you touched on there. Yes, yes, not a, not an easy one to grab in an interview, but in, uh, really interesting insights. Um, so you talked about doing a, a performance di- diploma 
I, I'm interested to know how did you learn the art of performance? And as you did, what was the most surprising thing that you've learned about it? <laughs> uh, well, I think I think I started learning about performing when when I um, when I was very little. Um, I I'd, I'd learned a few pieces maybe at the age of nine or ten that excited me when I played them. I remember a little simplified version of a Bach gavotte that I'd learnt. And um, I played it in my school assembly, and I was absolutely terrified. Uh, but that that kind of com confronting your worst fears kind of situation, that learning curve is, is steep. And um, it was quite buzzy. It was terrifying. I didn't necessarily enjoy it, but I enjoyed playing the piece. I enjoyed what the music was doing. Um, so... Ever since then, I've I've spent my life um, in different performance situations. So I've got used to it. I've got acclimatised to it, um, and all the different professional situations you find yourself in over the years, it does have a have a very profound effect on on the way that you think about music. You tend to choose repertoire because you know how it's going to work in front of an audience. So your whole perspective is is completely different. But the thing that really surprises me, um, um, all all the time, this never ceases to amaze me, is how much people really care about music. People that come to gigs, people that play music. It's, it's such a force. These people are really affected, really moved by music, as I am myself. Um, and that astonishes me, the, the, the sheer kind of spiritual reach of this funny thing when you're fiddling about on an instrument. The effect it can have on people is, is really very profound. And the whole planet is, is kind of wrapped in it, isn't it? If you... You imagine if you're a little alien looking down on Earth or listening in, trying to work out what's like, is that, you know, that they're going to, mostly they're going to hear music. They're going to hear a lot of, a lot of chatter as well, communication. But I wonder if they'd be able to work out which one is our actual communication, whether it's the musical sounds or the, or the, the vocal sounds. It's just a huge part of our planet, isn't it? That, that amazes me. I've never, never thought about it that way. And I think that's a lovely way to think about it. So, in performing, and one of the things I find is overlooked is, is the idea of coming down from performance. So, you've been on stage, you've you know, played to anywhere from sort of 20 people to 2,000 people, uh, and, you, and you come off into this, this weird atmosphere. Do you have a particular way of actually dealing with that? Uh, yeah, I do, and, and, and you do have to deal with that, actually, especially when you're touring. You have to... Um, um, you have to plan everything. I, I plan very carefully my, my get-ins at venues. I spend as much time before a concert preparing a, a performance space as I possibly can. So, and and, and that, that can mean arriving as early as, as, as midday for an evening performance and a very, very long, thorough afternoon of preparation. But some of that preparation, believe it or not, is preparing for the get-out. Um, I've got this, <laughs> this, this great thing about... about um, you know, set, setting the stage and setting all my gear ready for the get out as well. I know, I know where I'm going, I know where the hotel is, all that stuff. And I'll, um, whilst I try and arrive at the venue as early as possible, I try and drive to the next venue after the concert. So that drive time to the next town um, is actually quite a valuable part of winding down. You've got that private time travelling after a concert to mull over the experience that you've been through, make adjustments, um, you know, tweak things for the following day. Um, and by the time you get to bed, it's blooming late. So you tend to go to sleep, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
I know we've spoken about it before, but as you say, you you, you do take uh, particular attention to detail in the way that you set up the space for performance. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how you approach this, and in particular, what's influenced you to take that approach? Um, I'm I'm not sure where the influence has come from. Um, I mean, don't don't forget that I I spent most of my life playing on my own. I'm a I'm a soloist, and I and and I yeah. love that aspect of what I do. I love I love the I love the loneliness and the and and what that enables you to to concentrate on as an artist. You know, if you're on your own for long periods of time, you really can um, you really can think very deeply about what you're doing. Um, so I think I've just developed my own rather kind of I use the word obsessive again. <laughs> I'm a great. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a bit of a pencil sharpener and desk tidier and putting things at right angles, um, hoovering before I start a project. All that kind of mad stuff is very much part of my makeup, <laughs> and and that's worked its way into the preparation uh, for a concert on the day of the gig. Um, every every detail has to be sorted. There has to be um, a very very careful, well designed lighting plan. Lots of time spent with the technical staff at the venue, um, who will help me prepare the projections that I use and the lights. It has to look, it has to look right, and it has to look right for the audience. I'm, I'm never ever going to take my audience for granted. If they've, if they pay ticket money, or you know, as is the case in South America, they're just coming along for free, which is how a lot of stuff is done over there. Um, it, it doesn't matter. You're, you're still a host. You're still hosting the evening, and and those people are my guests, and I'm very, I'm very honoured that they've come to hear me play um so i want i want the space to be ready for them i want i want them to feel that there's some kind of magic already um happening when they come in the the doors at the back of the auditorium that's what it's all about i think that's a lovely way to sort of reframe a performance almost as a you know welcome to i've invited you to a particular evening that's very very special and 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 how you uh, approach that. I, I love that, and I, I encourage listeners to think about that when they're they're they're, they're thinking about their own performance. Well, it is it it it, it has a, has an effect on on the performer as well because it. Um, I mean, again, I uh, the, the kind of spiritual aspect of it is it, it is important. So you need to you need to kind of humanize the space that you're performing in. So when people enter, there's 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 something alive already. So you're not walking on cold. And and you sense that as well. If you spent all day fiddling about with a stage, um, and and you only leave that stage when when it's when it's doors. So quite often I'll get kicked off the stage by the front of house stuff. For God's sake, we've got to open the doors. Okay, kind of just give me another minute. <laughs> That's what I normally say. So when you, when you come back on stage, and the difference is there's a, a bunch of people out there, so you're not alone anymore. Um, it's it's like it's like walking into your own home because you spent the whole day there. It's a, it's a lovely feeling. It helps you play better. So as you play better and when you're in flight in a piece, tell us what that feels like for you. How would you describe it? Um, well, <laughs> they're very, very... There are all sorts of different different sorts of experiences you can have. If you're, if you're match fit, you're halfway through a tour, you've got your show running really nicely and you're happy with it, it, it there, there's nothing more magical. Nothing more magical. Um, of course, there are times when you struggle if it's early in a tour or... Something's not quite right. You're tired, or um, for some reason your playing's not up to scratch. You still got to continue, um, and that's where the technical preparation comes in, and indeed the venue preparation, because 
you know, you can't, you can't, you can't make too many stinkers during a gig, otherwise you wouldn't get asked back. Um, so th th there, are, th there are lots of different answers to that question. It, it depends. It depends how well the gig's going. The thing is, you got, you just got to, you got to have a smile and <laughs> carry on regardless, whatever it feels like. So hopefully, to the audience, it's. Um, it's this. It's a similar kind of experience for them, but my God, for the performer, it's a bit of a roller coaster. So, do you find that performing has become easier over the years? And if so, what has become easier, and and why? Um, yeah, definitely, things get easier as you as you become more experienced. You've you've done. I, I've done an enormous amount of gigs in my life. Um, so hopefully, I've learned something about consistency and. And the kind of self-discipline before you go on stage, all those kind of preparation things um, hopefully make for fewer mistakes and a better experience with the audience, um, a better sound coming out of your instrument, those kind of things. Um, it's difficult to quantify, really. I mean, um, I am certain that the best musicians I know, none of them think they're anywhere close to playing well myself included, I've got so much to learn. I'm never completely happy. And um, God, at, at the end of a tour, I think, if I, maybe next year, two years' time, wait till you hear it then. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a kind of, um, I think, not exactly perfectionism. It's, it's just a feeling that you can always do it better, because of course you can. You can always play better. You can always mm. give a better performance. There, there are there are the occasional nice gigs where you know that it's gone really well and the audience have responded well. But sometimes you get a great response from a gig where you think you've made a total pig's ear of it. So very, very difficult to read. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to the younger you preparing for a life of music performance? <sighs> um, I think that if you're preparing for a life of performance, my goodness me, oh, oh don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, I think you have to, it's all about, it's all about, it's all about self-discipline, of course. You, you, you have to realise that, 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 that if you put in a lot of time on your instrument, if you do the 10,000 hours and then carry on, you're going to become fairly good at playing that thing singing, whatever it is you're doing. But it's all about self-discipline. You have to continue. You've got to keep working at it. You've got to keep yourself match fit. fit. Um, uh, you have to, to do that, you have to have some kind of, uh, you have to have very strong self-belief actually. And this is something which I've struggled with as a performer. You know, this thing about, about feeling that you haven't quite played as well as you would want to play can can mean that you give yourself a bit of a, you kind of beat yourself up a lot. You have to try and sustain some level of self-belief and, and you have to learn to get excited by your own ideas. You know, I, I, I do have, I think, some of the happiest um, and most exciting times I've had are when I've just written something or when I'm in the process of writing something or, or I've had an idea for a gig, a new tour. It's that preparation and that putting things in place that is just fantastic. So you have to... You have to um, just learn to rely on yourself and trust yourself and believe in yourself. 
Um, and don't depend too much on other people because other people will have a very, very different handle on what you're doing. It's good to get advice, great to get advice, great to get feedback, but um, rely on your own creativity. Play your own music if you can. And, um, you know, like I say, get excited by your own ideas because that, that's a great feeling and it, it usually leads to a good place. So what's next for you now? You've got a new record out, haven't you? Uh, yeah, my my um, uh, I completed my Paraguayan trilogy um, at the end of last year. I made three recordings of uh, three albums of Paraguayan music, um, which were interspersed with things I'd written myself. So, the girl at the airport um, included a piece I'd written for guitar and string orchestra, which I recorded with the City of Prague Philharmonic last year. That was very exciting. I'd never had uh, an orchestral piece of my own on an album before. Uh, that was good. That was good for self-confidence and self-belief <laughs> and all the aforementioned stuff. Um, so I, I've been touring that. I've, I've formed my own little orchestra, a 17-piece orchestra, which um, I absolutely love working with. Um, there are plans um, over the next 18 months to tour with that outfit, not just do the occasional gig, but to actually properly tour. And um, I'm writing a ukulele concerto, seen as you asked. Yes. Uh, where, where's, what, drew, what drew you to do that? Um, when I was eight, my brother bought me a banjolele and I was very puzzled, and I, um, especially by the tuning, which is a re-entrant tuning. My dog has fleas. It's got a high string on the bottom. I went running right. to my dad and I said, I said, Dad, what am I going to do with this? It's tuned all weird. He said, don't worry, son. It's just like the top four strings of a guitar. Set the bottom strings up an octave. And my relationship with the uke began. And it's been going on for years. I, I was lucky enough to produce an album by the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain. I became good friends with them. And, and, and they showed me what a blooming useful little thing the ukulele is. And I've included it in my concerts ever since. Now it's about time um, that the instrument had a, a, a popular concerto. Um, if that doesn't sound too classical, um, no, I think I think that's great. I've got a I've got a ukulele sat in the corner um, that is a is an electric ukulele. Believe it or not. Oh right, plugs so, in. Yeah, mine plugs in as well. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So I'll, I'll grab it. Hang on, I'm going to I'm going to grab my ukulele. Here it is. This is my this is my little uke. I'll play a little bit of the uh, this little section I'm working on is from the concerto. My dog has fleas. It's quite a sweet sound, isn't it? It's a beautiful sound. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the concerto. Well, a bit of Wonderful. it anyway. So if people want to connect to you and your music, what's the best way to do that, Richard? The best way to connect with any musician is go to a gig. So you can go online, you can uh, you can Googleize me, or go to my EarTube channel, um, search Richard Durrant, um, come and like me on Facebook, all that jazz. But what yeah. really matters, what really matters is come to a concert because uh, no amount of recordings or, or broadcasts will ever replace the live experience. And, and that really is, is one, one of the more positive things that's come out of the kind of dismantling of the music industry is there are more live shows. Um, so, yeah, come to a concert. There are plenty of them all the time um, around the UK and, and abroad as well. So 
look out for the gigs and come and say hello? Well, as a keen gig goer to not only your gigs, but also a whole bunch of other gigs, then I, I, I heartily agree with that. It's fantastic. Richard, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for much. taking time. Um, and I look forward to seeing you on the road very soon. Fantastic. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Well, I hope, like me, you're grinning from ear to ear having listened to that. Richard was not only a great raconteur, but very generous in offering up a ton of tips and insights which I hope you'll find useful as you continue on your own musical journeys. If you want to catch Richard live, then Richard will be out touring his Christmas repertoire throughout the whole of December in the UK. Grab your tickets now. There's usually standing room only if you leave it too late. And it's not uncommon for gigs to sell out. I guarantee you will have a great time, and particularly if you're a fan of the guitar like me. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do head over to iTunes and take a minute just to leave me some feedback. Keep your eyes open for some very, very exciting news for January 2017, when I'll be co-hosting a virtual summit with some of the world's leading experts and artists covering a whole range of subjects on the psychology of music performance. It's all a bit secret squirrel at the moment, but fear not, fair listener, you'll be the first to know. Once all the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. So, until next time... Take care. Bye for now. Well, that wraps up another episode of Conversations in Confidence. Tune in next Monday for more tips, tricks and insights with Paul Crick, the Performance Confidence Coach.